Oh, I accidentally played our wind jingle there. Uh, it was not ascending tonight. But uh, welcome back to Game Over Ottawa, everybody. Mod here, back once again. Uh, unfortunate 3-2 loss to the Kings for the Sens here tonight. And uh, I'm lucky to, enough to be joined by two guests. Um, we have uh, Shane Molloy from Hockey Prospect Radio. How are you doing tonight, Shane? Doing great. Looking forward to the great discussion. Mm -hmm. And recurring guest, Louis from the Zoobcast. How are you? Very, very good. Happy to be back. Just unfortunate and coincides with another Sens loss. Yeah, it's uh, it is pretty pretty rough for that so far. I feel like I've mostly covered losses at this point so far this season, even though it's only been nine games. It's just uh, it's getting a little bit out of hand pretty quickly here tonight. So I, I wouldn't say that it was one of the Sens' worst games so far this season, but obviously not enough to get things done here tonight. I guess I'll throw it to you first, Louis. What did you notice overall? As a as a as how the Sens played as a team really today that uh, that led to them not being able to get it done. I mean, I felt like it was pretty staggered between like a different story between the three periods. Like at the first, yes, there was like the penalty that led to the goal for LA, and just in general, there's like a whole five minute chunk where LA was really dominating, but the rest was pretty solid. And then the second, obviously, with all the injuries and the injury news of Greg not being able to come back made it really tough. And there were even boos like in the arena late mm -hmm. before the Kubalik goal. And then you could tell they were a little bit more fired up. Um, but ultimately, it, it was just so messy for the last, like even though they made it close and really got some momentum going, it was really messy and sloppy play for the second half of the third. And obviously the Hamannick penalty kind of killed any momentum because it wasn't, it didn't just stop there at the penalty. After that, it took them a whole minute and a half before they could get possession get together and eventually just led to a dump in where they were just trying to get any sort of sustained pressure which didn't really happen in time unfortunately mm -hmm. yeah i have to say that comeback attempt especially in the last five minutes or so there was really hard to watch it was just oh. kind of uh, the five on five play in this game was just really tough for the sense to generate anything uh i guess shane was there anything about how the kings played that you think led to ottawa struggling to generate chances well certainly their puck possession uh, was a significant factor, as well as if you, when you notice the Kings play, one of the things that really sort of stands out to me is, you know, every one of their players, it's really important to them to ensure that there's puck support with or without the puck. And so from them, if, if there's a battle, somebody else is going to be engaged right away, or if they have to make a quick, short pass, that player is in the right spot. And I think that consistently made a difference. And the Kings took advantage of any mis mistake that the Ottawa Senators had. And that's where a lot of their goals were generated by just like, and some of it was unlucky, but you also have to be in the right place to be lucky. You know, we, sometimes we talk about luck as being an independent variable, but I think it's dependent because if you're always in the, you're in the right place more often or the place where goals are scored or in the place where, you know, goals are defended, you're more likely for good things to occur. And I think the Kings were in those places more often. And then when something went wrong for the Sens, they pounced. And that was really the tail of the tape, I think, for most of the game. And then, of course, you know, we've seen it. This isn't the first time the Sens have done this, that late charge of trying to, like, you know, desperation to get back into the game. And it's just, it seemed a little bit, you know, just, just too late once again. And I think that really says something about the depth of the team. There just there isn't enough overall depth in this team. When they have, especially if they have injuries, there's not enough guys down below to really contribute to a level that 
they can compete against playoff caliber teams. Mm-hmm. Especially with the injuries, um, missing two forwards tonight. Like I remember, I think it was with just under two minutes left, we were uh, finally getting the puck out of our zone, and I think Stutzla just had to shoot it in because they were tired and needed a line change. And when you're missing forwards like that, uh, there's there's not much you can do about that. So that's a huge hindrance as well. And I, I agree with what you're saying about the Kings in terms of uh, being in the right spots. It, it kind of looks lucky sometimes, but they they know where to be to be in those right spots, right place and right time. Uh, I think they're just a super relentless and structured team that just comes at you in waves. And we just saw it consistently all night. I think it was a, a really good 60 minute effort from the Kings. And that's something that the Sens really haven't been able to pull off consistently this season is those 60 minute efforts. Um, finding themselves in another multi-goal hole early in this game. That's been a theme so far this season too. Um, I'll throw it to Louie. What do you think about the Sens constantly being down like 2-0, 3-0, even worse sometimes in these games? Uh, is, is it a matter of like team systems or is it just the players not being ready to play? Uh, I, th- I, I think it is a, like a little bit of system stuff, but like, as Shane st- said, it's a lot of what we saw last year, right? Where you're lacking depth down the lineup. And because of that, you only really get a chance um, when you have your top guys out. And the problem is you get in this routine where one bottom line, like one of the bottom six lines ends up getting hemmed in. They get really tired, so they have to dump the puck out. So a new line comes in and then that same cycle repeats where because they're coming in, the Kings have the puck in this example. They come down, sustained pressure against us, and then we're tired by the time we get the pack. By the time we get the puck, have to dump it out, and that's a shift wasted for a top six team. So that's definitely going up against us. And yeah, a, a big problem is the depth, and that's seemingly not going to get any better. Like I'm pretty sure DJ said, um, from, from what I saw, that Castellick and Greg are going to miss games, right, oh, because God. of the severity of the injury, which is terrible. That sucks. Like especially for Ridley, who's having such a good season, right. Like he was leading tied with tied with Pavel Matyukov, by the way. Shout out to my former Ottawa 67s all-star defenseman there. Um, but he's been doing so well, and it's it really is a heartbreaker to see him go down like that. No, one of the things you know, to sort of like jump onto that as well is the team's quite young. Even with having, you know, you know, you know, Mark and and, and Ridley back in the lineup. Even if you end up having, you know, Zubin Brandstrom, it's it's a young team. So anytime you have players that are under the age of 24, particularly, they're going to be consistently inconsistent because, you know, in some in many cases, any any we all remember when we're like 20 years old, how inconsistent we were. And that's based on brain development. And it's just a, a fact of nature that, you know, that you can be as talented as you want and skilled as you want. But until you're brain finishes developing, you're going to be inc- consistently inconsistent when it comes to decision-making, particularly under duress. And human beings, they, they we talk about it on TV, but it's not true. We don't rise to the challenge. No human being does that. We only follow to the level of our training. And until those habits are consistent, you're going to have inconsistencies in those young players, and these things are going to happen. And, and when it comes to systems, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan personally of – of DJ's system. I don't necessarily like the way his team always plays. There's almost times where I'm like, there's unnecessary 
dumping of the puck into the offensive zone to go and chase yes. and get it. Yep. Like you're absolutely don't get me wrong. Not everything is about puck possession. There are times when dumping the puck in is actually the right play, but it's like, it's, it's, you have to do it. Like that's part of our system. Just go do it. Even if that's not the right play. And then you're taking, you want your F1s and F2s to come barreling into the defensemen and start hucking their bodies, which is, you know, obviously necessary in the playoffs, but you, you do run the risk of injuries. Like when you have a guy like Ridley Gregg, who's like, like a dynamo, he doesn't care. He's going to throw his body around. But when you have a body of like, he's not very big injuries are going to happen. So I'm not saying that you, you can't coach that out of somebody. If they're, they're players like that, they're going to be a dog on the bone. But I think there's more intelligent ways in terms of having different systems that are more attuned to the talent you have on the team, but also what the players like to play. And I don't get I don't get the impression that the players really love the system they're playing in. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the dump and chase because that's exactly where I was going to go next. I saw a stat earlier this week that uh, the Sens ranked fourth last in the league in terms of 5v5 carried zone entries. So it's it's at the point where it's just they're not even doing it. It's like dumping it like 70% of the time. and like For the said, sake of dumping it. Yeah, yeah. It, like there were so many times we would shoot it in. I think we did this with the goalie pulled too. We shoot it in and there's only one guy forechecking. The other guys aren't even really getting in there. It's half the time it feels like just dump and no chase too. Yeah, and I think, you know, when I've been serving hockey, you know, you, you look at certain styles and it fits certain players. And I'm always of the adage is that the teacher, which would be the coach, has to adjust to the students that he has, the players, instead of the other way around. You really have to look at your roster and go, okay, what is the best system that we can play based on the roster construction that we have? And then what's coming in the system and what is the, you know, organizational mandate of the style of players we have? And then, you know, augment your system based on that instead of saying, this is the way I like to see the game played and this is the way we're going to play. And it does, it's not always necessarily effective for the personnel that you have. And there just doesn't seem any kind of leeway in that. It's just, this is the way we play, and this is the way I like to play, and we're going to figure out how to – I'm just going to keep bashing it into my players until they get it. And if they don't get it, they just you know they play less, play less minutes. So I don't know. It seems to be a bit of a vicious circle in that respect. I think it's very rare as well to see a coach, especially one that has been with the same team for so long, to just suddenly switch up his strategies too. So if the management group agrees with us that his style isn't really fitting the, the type of players that we have on this roster, and now the fact that we are sitting below 500 after nine games, um, I, I'm pretty sure DJ is going to be on the hot seat at this point, right? Like, uh, I'll, I'll throw it to you, Louis. Do you think you would fire him like as soon as now if you were management or would you give him a little more time well based on the comments that Andlauer and Steos gave yesterday right it doesn't necessarily seem like it and they seem relatively supportive again this could just be what they're saying to the media especially given all the other stuff that's been flying around because god have they had to deal with a lot over the last 10 days right and you could also throw in the factor that it was a 300th game tonight they maybe didn't want to put any sort of cloud over that um 
But yeah, it, listen, it hasn't been working. It's been cons- consistently poor early on in the season. Um, personally, I, I do think there are definitely better options out there. Um, and there is something to say about likability amongst the players, but when the on-ice product is where it's at right now, and like I agree, there are some good four-checkers on this team, absolutely. But the problem is you also have so much talent and skill that would be much better suited for a more uh, dynamically and assertive system, which is not being taken advantage of here at all. No, I know I agree with that in the fact that okay, there's different styles of forechecking. Now there's the forechecking yeah. where you're bailing into the defenseman every time and trying to put him, you know, through the end boards. And then there's pressure as well. It doesn't mean you can't make contact because that's great too, but there are different ways to forecheck to force turnovers and Absolutely. i'm always i'm always of the adage is that if you're going to beat my team you're going to beat us with a great play if you beat us with a great play so be it you know you shrug your shoulders they beat us with a great play but force them to make a great play you know and the game moves fast faster through the puck than skating but you have some skaters and that can force guys into areas where it's not an ideal option for them and force them to make mistakes and like, there's teams out there that I I like watching play. I like how Carolina plays. Like, oh, yeah. I think high I think octane. Way, <laughs> well, I think the way Carolina plays actually fits a lot of the personnel that you know, Ottawa has. Or even if you watch college hockey, if you look at Quinnipiac University, similar. Like, they're a relentless puck pursuit team. If you have the puck, we're skating to get it back. There's no, it's not passive at all. And they're not necessarily smashing bodies all the time, but there's always a body on you. And at some point, you got to move that puck. And it has to be fast. Otherwise, we're, they're on you. So, you know, just because I look at Ottawa's lineup and there's just some really, really strong skaters. And under, they understand how to sk- skate the game. It's not necessarily skating fast because that's not always productive. I've seen a lot of guys who skate super fast and they skate themselves into a dead end. You have to understand how they skate the game. And I think that from that standpoint, I think there's some enough players on this roster to make that type of system effective. So I'm curious to see what, you know, this management group, the ownership group is going to do because there is a lot of flux and it is now their opportunity. If they're going to make changes and I'm not advocating for, you know, DJ to lose his job, but if they're going to make changes, there is going to be a time where they start to bring in a general manager and he wants to bring in more personnel. And then, okay, maybe, you know, they have the discussion that this it's time to move on from this coaching group and bring in different personnel and try something different in terms of the style of play that they want. That doesn't mean you can't play hard. I mean, Carolina hurricanes play hard. There are other teams that play systems that are, you know, I wouldn't consider bang and crash like, you know, the old Calgary Flames, but you can still play hard hockey and still play that way. So I'm curious to see what happens there. It's I think the Ottawa Senators at this point are the most intriguing team in the NHL, not because what's happening on the ice, but what potentially can happen off the ice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's always just constant entertainment with the Sens, whether good or bad, a lot of drama. And obviously we're going to get into that a little bit later with uh, all the Pierre Dorian stuff that happened this week, but just a little bit more on tonight's game yet. I think I'm going to try to find some positives here for the Sens is that like, 
I'll ask you, I'll give you guys my answer first, and then I'll ask both of you. I'm going to ask both of you to name who stood out the most positively for the Sens for you tonight. For me, it was Corpus Allo. I think he's had a really good stretch of games here. None of the three goals were his fault here today, and it was a lot of shots on goal in the end by the Kings too, so... I, I would have him as my MVP for the Sens tonight, even though it does end up being a losing effort. Just, just you know, to get a little bit of positivity in here, uh, who who do you think stood out for you for the Sens today, Louis? I was also going to go Corpus Allo because, like, he Makes saved, uh, let me see, 0. 0.9 goal saved above expected tonight, which is solid. Like, he absolutely gave this team a chance. He was single-handedly preventing Kempe from scoring a hat trick tonight. Oh, yeah, he, like, he could have had so many. Yeah. My God, yeah. he was buzzing tonight. And I don't know what it is, but Kempe always does super well here in Ottawa because uh, earlier I was talking with my dad watching the game and he still hasn't forgiven Kempe for his insane performance like four or five years ago when we went to go see a game where Kempe <laughs> just lit us up. And yeah, Corpusello did super well. I don't know if in his like two months there in LA, he maybe got the book on Adrian or not, but... Um, he did he did very very well tonight and yeah it's hard to find a lot of pauses because it, it very much was a doom and gloom game yes there were some bright spots here and there but overall Corpusella was absolutely the brightest light for sure mm-hmm. now think, Shane? I'm not going to go down the Corpusella train because that's where I was going to go but <laughs> another course. player that sort of jumps out uh, was to Chuck only because if you look at when when the chips were down he was a guy that emotionally was talking to players on the bench and that's necessary for a captain to do though do so and it's one of the things although ottawa centers have had this trend of getting behind early in games i give them credit they don't give up there may be a late charge and there's been a lot of late charges in games lately but i give them credit as a collective group they don't just give up and roll over like there's fight in the group and so emotionally and mentally, they're obviously, you know, there's will there. And that's what I liked about to Chuck. It's just a reminder, hey, guys, we can come back. We've done this kind of thing before, or we've had done some late hard charging. Let's try it again. So for me, that matters because he's the engine. He's just not going to let the guys get flat and, and be like, oh, woe is me. It's one of these games again. So that's an, I just watch body language when I watch games. Um, I particularly enjoy watching it when I'm watching live games because that really dictates what's going to happen in the future is bad body language. That's a, just a huge red flag for me. And that didn't happen on their bench tonight. That's a very great point. Uh, that's obviously what you want to see from your captain. I do think that even though this is a pretty young team, the leadership group is quite solid. Like we saw Claude Giroux doing sort of a similar thing last week against the Islanders when we were down, especially after uh, Brandstrom got injury or Brandstrom got injured, sorry. And uh, the, the troops kind of needed to be rallied there. He was really pumping everyone up on the bench and being encouraging. So between Giroux and Kachuk and a couple of other guys, I do think they have the right leadership in the locker room so that this won't you know, sort of just snowball and and go way out of control. But I do think we we are in in danger of of the season getting a little bit uh, out of out of hand. Even though I, you know, I'm glad you brought up the leadership there because we do have guys who can help mitigate that a little bit. Even though the play on the ice um, is is getting a little rough lately. And uh, yeah. before we move on to our next segment, uh, talking about Pierre Dorian because. 
obviously we have to. Just going to remind everyone in the chat that if you have any questions for us, for either me, uh, Shane, or Louie, leave those uh, at any time, no matter what topic it's about, and we'll be looking to answer some of those towards the end of the show. So whatever it's about, if you've got any questions, let us know. Um, and then from there, to introduce the Dorian segment, I think I want to start off with talking about the actual punishment from the NHL. And I have talked about this a lot already, so I'm going to ref like defer to you guys a little bit. Do you were you surprised at how harsh that punishment was? And also, do you think it's it makes sense that this was the straw that broke the camel's back for for Dorian to be finished with the senators at this point? I'll start with you, Shane. No, I'm not surprised by the level of punishment. Reason is is that it affected two other NHL teams. If it had only affected your team, uh, the Ottawa Senators, then that would be different. Like if it was um, a circumvention of the salary cap and it was only going to affect your team and it happened to be a signing, but because it affected two other teams in subsequent trades, then I and it's an embarrassment not only for the Ottawa Senators, but then for the Vegas Golden Knights, and then an annoyance more than anything for you know, the Anaheim Ducks, but then an embarrassment for the league because your management, you can't make those kind of mistakes. Like you, sh you need to have checks and balances in your systems and have people in place in your office that make sure these things don't happen. And now I'm unsure we've asked these questions, why the NHL doesn't have a central registry that has all That's of these in place, yeah. right? Like so that everybody can refer to that. So that not only do the, it's sent in by the agents, but the teams. So when contracts are signed and there's a registry so that anybody can access that. Now, you don't like there are situations, obviously, when an, a player will have uh, an, like a limited no trade and he hasn't assigned what teams that is. And that can be private and he can disclose that at any time, like when he wants to. But at least it says he has a limited no trade and it's 10 teams he can't be traded to. So at least they understand that. But I do understand, and, and I'm, I I know it's unfair. I, I know some Sens fans are going to say this is unfair, but I understand why the NHL came so hard on them because it affected other teams. So I, I get that. Do I think it's a fireable offense? And the lat final, was that the final straw? Yes. Like I, I, I'm not. I'm never an advocate of people losing their job, but it was such a catastrophic mistake, and the punishment is so is like if it remains a first round pick, that is a, a massive loss of asset. That's worth millions of dollars. Millions. We're talking maybe t depending on the the skill of the player that you could have drafted, could be anywhere from ten to twenty million dollars mm -hmm. that you just lost your franchise. So for me, because I look at NHL teams as Fortune 500 companies and the general manager is a CEO. So you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And if you made a catastrophic mistake where that just lost your company that amount of money, that's a fireable offense. And, you know, people have to be, you know, accountable for those actions. That's an interesting way to put it with the uh, monetary value of a first round draft pick because I was kind of thinking like, Oh, I wish I think, or I think it would have been more fair if the NHL just find the sense money instead of a draft pick it, itself. But then it turns out, like obviously, 
depending on the quality of player, as you said, that the draft pick can have huge monetary value in the future too. So, uh, and Louis, would you pretty much agree with all of that, or do you have any any different outlook on term in terms of the punishment? Yeah, like I do think it is ridiculous that there is no sort of database or registry that's accessible by the teams. Yes, some of the info that would be related to the contracts is more on the private side, but then could easily be made accessible to whatever team acquires them or whatever. It's it, it really is kind of ridiculous that that doesn't exist already. As for the punishment and resulting in Darion's firing, like it did kind of feel like Darion was potentially on the outs, right? So I'm not really surprised that this ended up resulting in him losing his job. Um, and it's not like a scenario where you can look at it and say, okay, ignoring the punishment, he made the mistake, should he be fired? You, that's we're not in that kind of situation. The team lost a first round pick, right? And now I'm kind of looking at it, given what Ann Lauer said yesterday and the what we have seen in the past, for example, with New Jersey, when we, when they got uh, penalized with the Kovalchuk situation, uh, when new ownership had come in, they had said, hey, all the people who were in charge back then, the GM, whatever, the ownership was different. So should the punishment maybe be rescinded or lessened? And it did. It got changed to the 30th overall pick instead of them just completely losing the pick. And given everything that was said about how uh, the NHL was essentially potentially negligent uh, in disclosing this sort of information to the buyer to ensure a higher price for the seller during the sale, that is also potentially a case that Ann Lauer and the rest of the organization could raise up to have that penalty lesson. So I am interested in seeing that and seeing what comes of it. Uh, but yeah, it's it's definitely a big blow, and I'm I'm not necessarily surprised to see it result in in this. Yeah, that's kind of how I'm coping as a fan. Is that that whole New Jersey situation where they ended up uh, rescinding the penalty a little bit, or at least uh, making it not as harsh after a few years had passed, and because it was a sim similar situation where uh, the Devils had changed ownership around that time so they weren't the ones in charge when it happened maybe there's yeah. a little bit of an agreement here where uh Bettman says like okay you weren't here when this happened if you get rid of Pierre because he was the guy responsible then maybe we'll we'll go a little lighter in the future don't know if that's the case but that's kind of how I'm thinking as a fan in terms of I feel like the punishment is just a little bit too harsh so I'm hoping that it can get lowered in the future but yeah Dorian his tenure with the Sens finally comes to an end after i think seven years i think it was 2016 when he when he started as gm i mean his actual tenure with the sense is even longer than that but as gm seven whole years and the team's record uh was not very good over the course of of that uh over the course of that time span only three teams i think it was detroit arizona and uh, some other bottom feeder had worse records over that time span and obviously when dorian inherited the team we had that amazing season going to the conference finals, so we weren't expecting it to be this bad seven years ago, for sure. Uh, I guess just, uh, for me, I recognize the ups and downs of Dorian's career. Like, there's many good moves that he made that are still able to be seen on the roster today in terms of how this team is set up for the future. But then there's been a lot of blunders. So, for me personally, I just... I'm kind of ready for a new person leading the Sens, even though I wasn't really like screaming for Dorian to be fired. I think it, it's probably just about time we get like a new set of eyes in there uh, calling the shots. What, what about you, Louis? 
Yeah, it's it, it very much has been a roller coaster like with him at the helm. It's uh he's definitely been one of the most active, noticeable and entertaining for better or for worse GM in definitely. the in the league since uh since 2016 when he came in and yes, he gave us well again, it it can be debated how much credit you can give him for that 2017 run, right? Cuz he came in in April of 2016 where most of that core was already there and then he made this advantage ad and a second for Brassol deal, right? That ended up, and Brassol was great in that playoff run. Um, but after that, you know, we we don't talk about um, yeah. <laughs> the difference <laughs> in player awesome. value there. Um, but yeah, and there will totally be like good value inherited from what he had done, right? Like the the Stutzla, the Sanderson, Ketchuk contract, and the Chikrin trade and all that. Those will be players that will be here for a good bit. And those are excellent additions. But yeah, as you said, there were, a lot of blunders like again i still i'm I'm still surprised we have travis hamannick <laughs> i'm not gonna lie i did not expect us to trade a third for him not too long ago and then re-sign him um and there's been a lot of stuff like the debrinka trade at first was great ended up not working out and then the uh not so so ceremonious exit either um i i do wonder if he gets another look at some point for another NHL team or if he has to kind of build his credibility back up um, or if what he has done and the blunder that essentially cost the team a first round pick essentially takes him off the radar because that's something I'm definitely going to be keeping track of. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good thing to bring up. What do you think about that, Shane? Do you think this blunder is the type of thing where he might be out of the NHL for a little while or do you think he gets picked up again soon? Well, let's look at it from two different perspectives. If you look at the Ottawa Senators draft and development record from the salary cap era, beginning salary cap era, 2006 to 2015, that first 10 years where the valuation of players radically changed. The Ottawa Senators were, I believe, second or third in most efficient teams of drafting players and developing them into playing 200 plus games or more in the NHL. They're in the top three. So they did an excellent job in that respect. But then if you look at what happens, the difference between a consistent playoff team and a contender is being consistent in their drafting and developing. So if you look at the L.A. Kings, the Washington Capitals, the um, Anaheim Ducks, they're all in the top five. Now, Anaheim is a different case study because I think their general manager at the time, Bob Murray's, he had similar issues to Pierre in terms of his asset management was poor. And that cost them all the assets that Martin Madden and other people had, you know, accumulated for him. But then what happens if you look at, you know, yes, the Ottawa centers were excellent in drafting and developing from 06 to 15, but you look from 2016 to 2021, I know everybody gives them credit. Like there's this good young core, but 2016, Logan Brown was drafted 11th overall. He's played 99 games in the NHL. Shane Bowers was 28th overall. In 2017, he's played one game. Jacob Bernard Docker played his 37th game. That's 2018, 26th over, overall pick. Uh, Lassie Thompson in 2019, 18 games so far. Now, Logan Brown is 25, Bowers is 24, Docker is 23, Lassie Thompson is 23. If you're going to be a contender, every one of those players has to be in a Sens lineup, in the Sens lineup and playing. You can't you can't be below eighty percent efficiency in the first round when you're drafting and developing. Now we can't really 
judged Tyler Boucher yet at 10th overall. Like as much as I like Tyler Boucher as a player, I certainly wouldn't have drafted him 10th overall, even though I fully admit I have biases towards power forwards. Um, you know, they come back to haunt me on my list every time um, until recent years where I learned, I got smacked around enough. I learned my lesson. But if you look at not only those for those four first round picks, but some second round picks in there too, that didn't work out. Jonathan Dolling is one, another one where, you know, traded away in an asset that was burned you just can't within the first 45 picks you have to hit players you have no choice you have to hit them and that's the difference between this team being the new jersey devils right now and them being where they are is those first round picks not turning out now there is a uh, an evaluation aspect value of that. There's a player development issue in that, but also one of the themes that has come up a lot in my conversations, because I go out and scout players too. I scouted for the USHL, but in the conversations I have on my radio show on hockey prospect radio, uh, where we have NHL guests is off air. There's a lot of discussion about GMs meddling in drafts. And because they don't get to see the players all the time, especially if they were a former scout, they like to get their fingerprints on the draft. And when GMs tend to influence drafts, it tends not to work out very well in their favor. And I wrote, actually, I wrote an academic paper uh, based on a general manager in the past. Uh, and he was fully transparent of him interfering in the draft. And he goes, At the second time I, lo- I learned my lesson. And that was Dean Lombardi from L.A. And he goes, no, I just let my guys do their thing. And all I do is I come in, I'm a facilitator, and I ask questions, and I punch holes in in their argument of a player. Okay, what are you guys missing in this profile? Just to ensure that you guys have all the data you need. And sometimes this is what happens when a GM gets influenced. He doesn't see the players enough time to build out that profile. And then they meddle and they pick the players they want and it blows up in their face. And it just, it happens. And Dorian isn't like in an Island by himself. That happens. It's happened more frequently in the history of the NHL, particularly in the last 20 years, more than some fans may realize. And that, that is part of the legacy is those four, four first round picks, not turning out to what they need to be. Now could Docker find his way. There's a possibility that he gets over the 200 game mark, but we'll see. And now I haven't even got into the trades or the free agent signings of Dorian, where I think there's just been, and I really like Pierre personally, so it's not personal. I have to look at this situation objectively, you know, from an economic standpoint. And how I view it is that there's just, there was too many inefficiencies in the valuation of players, whether it's recouping assets coming back or the contract that, contracts that he's putting out in terms of it seemed like he was always in a catch-up mode now not to speak ill of the dead but obviously the previous owner and eugene melnick you know you look at the budget that pierre had and that was an influence as well i mean we talk about it like how small that staff is and his unwillingness to hire more staff so not only you know pierre was handcuffed He didn't have enough personnel around him comparative to other teams. So, you know, you can only juggle so many balls in the air at the same time until you start dropping them. And in that case, that's going to happen. And I think it was a culmination of those things that ended up, 
you know, the sins are where they are because of that. Yeah, and I, I, I would oh, like to ahead, add, sorry, about uh, like what you had mentioned with the whole uh, stats for the sins draft wise from 2006 to 2016 and then 2016 onwards. And that perfectly coincides with Pierre being with the org, but not as general manager, right? Because he's yeah, running the draft because he was running the yeah. draft. Like he's he's actually, yeah. you know, you, you have to give him credit. He's actually a very good evaluator of players like and he has a track record to prove that out from 06 to 15 it proves it out when he was running the draft there did exceptionally well but when you leave that role and you're always have been a scout it's hard not it's hard to kick that habit and i've talked to gms who have done that like they've jumped up levels and now it's so hard for them to not want to like that's their instinct they're by nature they're scouts and then that is, it's just, it's a really harsh contrast of 06 to 15, and then 16 to, to really to 20, you know, cause I'm not going to count, you know, Tyler Boucher in that as well. And they've had some successes, but look, when you're picking that high, you better have successes, but you can't have 11th overall that doesn't pan out, right? You can't have a 19th overall that hasn't panned out. Even in the later rounds, when obviously the probability of these players playing 200 games, you know, drops after 22, Still at 28 and 26, Bowers and Docker, you got to find a way for these guys to play. Like, even if you're going to trade them away, you got to build up asset. And it just didn't, it didn't happen. And that says something about the lack of personnel they have too, as much as, you know, you know, their player development staff, you know, and Sean Donovan and Brad Winchester, they're doing as much as they possibly can, but two, two, full-time people in player development over that time frame, that's not good enough. Like you look at teams that are successful in that area, they got four or five guys. LA Kings have five, four and five guys working in player development. Sends up two, right? Like this is part of the, you know, the situation that Pierre had to deal with as well. And whether it, if it was his own volition or uh, ownership said, this is the amount of budget we're willing to do. And you just have to work through it. You know, Fortune 500 companies can't be run this way. Like you have to treat. Like I laugh when people say, "Oh, is it the business side or the op- or the hockey side?" Well, the hockey side is the business side. It's operations it's all together. Yeah. It well, it's operations. It's no different than an operations department of a Fortune 500 company. It should be treated as such. So your general manager, CEO, you have to give them enough resources to hire enough people. Like the game is too complex. And there's too many moving parts to have one gen- assistant general manager. That's insane. You should have three. You, you need to have three. And then, you know, staff underneath that. And look, I like a lot of their scouts. I think they've done a really good job on the amateur and pro side in terms of like you got scouts like Bob Janasek and uh, George Farger and Don Boyd, you know, on the amateur side, they're really strong scouts. Uh, you know, Jim Clark on the pro side is the director. They do. He does a really good job there too, but when you don't have enough people in middle management, you know, the decisions are left to like one or two people. And then it starts like you just, you can't function that way because you get caught in a silo and you need some dissenting voices in the group to be able to make it more holistic when it comes to decision-making. So I think this is, I think that, you know, what's happened to the center is if you pull back and look at it as a macro you know, investigation, it's an interesting case study of why, you know, you need to invest in your staff. 
like I, I'd make an argument that the top seven decision makers in an NHL hockey ops department are more valuable than the players to the success of the franchise over a decade because Absolutely. player rosters are going to overturn. But if you don't make smart decisions consistently within your group of the top seven decision makers or to 10, depending on the size of your group, that's where the impact is. Like we, of course the players have to play, but if you look at successful franchise, let's look at LA as an example, look at their turnover of players, but their staff hasn't turned over a lot. A few people have left and retired. And a couple of people have moved on to other organizations, but the core is still there, you know, and they can just, they keep finding players. So why should Ottawa be any different? Yeah. Um, in, in terms of Dorian, you know, not having the help and having too much on his plate as well. I, I do wonder if that could be kind of the, one of the, one of the biggest factors that resulted in the mistake with the whole Dadanov debacle. Like if you have more guys in the room in management to help him out and other guys like involved in the trade call and stuff in the room during that type of thing, they can say like, Hey, Oh, you missed this detail or, Oh, that's not accurate. Like the, the guy was kind of hung out, hung out to dry by, by ownership. So we do have to consider all of that with, with Dorian's tenure is that it, he was really understaffed and it was kind of just a one man show for a lot of it. Um, but I, I feel like despite that, it's, it's still a bit of a rocky track record overall. Um, uh, it's, it's tough. Uh, Louis, in terms of uh, like player management overall, or I guess asset management, I mean, like, how would you rate Dorian in terms of like his his trade record? Because because to me, I feel like it, it's kind of like the 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 bad outweighs the good for a lot of it. Like trading away Zabanajad, Duchesne acquiring him the first time obviously went poorly, and then you look at the when we traded him away. We don't have any assets left from that. We got a first and a couple of prospects. Uh, just just Lassie Thompson, I guess. So he's the one that's left, but he he was gone on waivers briefly, and now he's back. So not a not a ton of value left in that asset. And uh, there was the Hoffman trade debacle. Stone, uh, some people think we didn't get enough for. And uh, you mentioned the Debrinka trade earlier uh, as also something that might have been a little mismanaged. I feel like, obviously, we've talked a lot about the the drafting side, which has gone poorly in the last few years outside of those uh, top few picks. But but uh, in terms of trades, like, do you, do you agree with me that it's been pretty rough, Louis? Yeah, it felt like he was playing a lot of catch-up and trying to fix mistakes that he had done previously, right? Like the Matt Murray and Nikita Zaitsev, uh, that entire trajectory is a perfect example of that. It embodies exactly what kept happening is that that Matt Murray trade was potentially a, like, I th- what was the exact uh, amount he gave up? I think it was a second and second and um, John Gruden, I think John Gruden. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was like, it's the guy who's, you know, who also has the same name as a former NFL coach or current. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I don't follow the NFL enough. Um, but yeah. And it's just a lot of that was okay we've made this mistake how do we recover from it when right from the get-go we'd be like hmm, maybe we hold off and reevaluate this before making it right and it ended up costing us in picks i think i don't know what the exact combined total was but just from zaitsev and murray alone you lose like two seconds a third and some like b or c level prospects for guys who didn't pan out and probably weren't gonna just from the start seemingly so it's it is a little tough. Yes, there were some diamonds in the rough there. Um, but like, 
And I think he would be looked upon in a very different light if the Carlson trade didn't pan out as exceptionally as it did. Because mm-hmm. I remember the day that that happened. I was oh, yeah. in chemistry class. I fell to my knees. I was so right? mad. That was terrible. Um, and then just sure enough, the, the just the floor just fell up from underneath the Sharks. They completely collapsed. Josh Norris, I mean, obviously with the whole injuries, it's been it's been tough for him and it's nice to finally see him come back to, to playing. Like if it's at whatever level, it's just nice to see him fully healthy again and to know what he's capable of from the past. And obviously Tim Schlissel being the crowning jewel of that. But for a long time, all we thought that we were going to get was Norris, who is a middle 60 prospect and a late first round pick, right? Along with obviously the DeMello tyranny balsers, which none are still here, obviously. Um, but I think that gives him a lot more credit than we had thought it would have like from firsthand. And the thing is, I don't think this was very a very probable thing to happen at all. I think we are in one of the few timelines where this ended up panning out so well for us. And I'm super happy it did. But then again, at the time, it probably was not the best deal. And it shines on him better than I think it probably should. Yeah, Louis, like that's, his, that's his a good point, win. Louis. I was going to say his best win is a little bit of luck, right? It's a lot of luck. It's a lot. I'm glad you brought up that point of probability. The probability of it turning out that way of getting that pick so high wasn't like it's you. It might be single digit probability of that happening. But hey, sometimes sometimes that does happen. And that's where, you know, in terms of asset management, you know, I found in some cases and that Louis, you pointed this out. It's you're chasing bad money. Like there's a sunk cost and now you're throwing money at a sunk cost. You're better off just cutting it loose, you know, just basic economic. I'm not even talking about behavioral economic. I mean, that is behavioral economics in a nutshell is, you know, you can be risk averse and then you're, you despise like risk so badly, but then you want to make up for it because they work in an industry where everything is front facing. Like how many industries, you know, would people falter every time, like every time you make a decision, you have people yelling at you and you have people on the radio and people writing about you and people blogging about you and people on shows like this, you know, every time you make a decision, they're on, they're on you for it. Um, you know, that's a tremendous, like if you can't, don't understand how to handle that, that is problematic because in reality, you shouldn't care what other people these what any of us say it should be almost it should be relatively irrelevant to you as a general manager because you have to base your decisions off the information that you have not what this consensus is yelling because we're most of us are making you know judgments based on a lack of information until it's way over and then things start to bleed out as it has in this circumstance so it's an interesting place for him to be in, but if I looked at it in a totality, I think, you know, the legacy of that 2016 to 20, you know, 19 draft, those four drafts really hurt in terms of asset. And then some of the, you know, most of the trades did not turn out in his favor. And thankfully that the Carlson one has, because I don't think people would be praising this team for having this big, young, nice core. That wouldn't exist. If no, you're taking away in, their number one C and number one D in that case. Like right. that's a completely right. different franchise right. and identity. 100%. So basically you're pretty much, 
you know, you're, you're be the Buffalo Sabres, but three years ago, that's where they be. Mm-hmm. in all honesty. Yeah, that's scary. Right? That's scary to think about. Well, and it's also, you know, there's the, you know, and I'm not throwing rocks, but it's, it's such a difficult situation is that that's where, you know, rational decisions and patience matter. And like, we'll point to the Buffalo Sabres. Kevin Adams came in, you started seeing consistent, rational decisions and patience. It's amazing what happens in an organization if you stick to that and don't chase bad money. And and just don't – if you make a bad decision, just cut it loose and don't try to backfill it because it just – generally, if you're chasing, you just make things worse. Like you just – you're you know throwing gasoline on a fire in that respect. Just cut your losses. It's a sunk cost. Let it go. Yeah, so that's definitely a key attribute that we're going to want the next Sens GM to have uh, in their arsenal. And in terms of who might be the next Sens GM, there's been a few names floating around out there from Elliot Friedman. I believe he reported potentially Matthew Darsh, Peter Shirelli, and Jason Spezza. And then there's also some names we're going to get into here uh, that Shane has uh, has let me know about about guys who have I think been interviewing for GM positions around the league before, right? That uh, that are some new names that haven't been mentioned yet. Yeah, I'm, you know, well, let's talk about Peter Shirelli in that respect. Obviously, Matthew Darsh, because the Tampa Bay Lightning have won, you know, you know, once two two Stanley Cups. He's been in the organization for four years. You know, he was, uh, you know, his director of hockey operations, and this this year, you know, he's assistant general manager. So he does have a like although well respected, and you know I've have talking to talked to him on, on a few quite a few occasions. So I think I have a pretty decent bead. Like he's a very intelligent guy, but very small sample size in terms of experience. Four years is not a lot of time. So mm-hmm. there's that. You meet, but obviously highly competent, very well thought of, intelligent, intelligent. My curiosity with Peter Shirelli is: is this a group that he want, would want to be a part of as a GM? Like, does he like, is he comfortable being in the position where he has a president of hockey operations overseeing what he's doing? Is he okay with that dynamic? That I don't know. Cause I've had a chance. might want a role that's like higher up in the organization, sort of. Well, I mean, there isn't, there isn't, right? There's probably like on any potential team. On any potential team. No, I think if he was strictly just the general manager and he was like the person, the top person in charge. I just, I don't, without having that conversation with him, I don't know what his comfort level would be in that dynamic on this mm-hmm. team, right? Because there's a, there's going to be a lot of heavy lifting for the general manager. So that I don't know. Would he have an interest in the Ottawa Centers? Of course, he used to work there. Of course, you know, he still lives in the city. And of course, there's only 32 general manager positions. So it's hard not to put your head into the ring when you're still, you're looking for a new opportunity. So that's part of it as well. So that's that's in there as well. But then if you start to look around the league and general assistant general managers who have who have in the past have gone in and interviewed for GM positions around the league. And I always like to look back like so I've been fortunate with my show at Hockey Prospect Radio. We're in our 19th season. I've interviewed the majority of the potential GM candidates and potential assistant GM candidates over the last 18 years. And pretty much I've interviewed those people at least a dozen times, 10 times each. So I have all this qualitative, you know, evidence to support that. And I go back and I listen to these interviews that I've done and, and many of them are on video. So I watch the video again and take notes. So, cause it doesn't matter how often somebody speaks, they always leave breadcrumbs. 
of how they make decisions, what they emphasize, what's important to them. If you listen to them closely, what words they emphasize, their voice fluctuations. So I've been compiling these lists and then I go back and do a bunch of quantitative data, you know, as we talked about with Ottawa centers, graft and developing. So the names that kind of keep coming up is I try to look at it from this perspective. What is their hockey experience? Have they worked in a bunch of different departments throughout the hockey ops department? What is the success rates from the player development and the drafting side, you know, the pro side as well. That's really important. Like when they've been in that organization, do they have practical business experience outside of hockey? I think that's, you know, important thing to look at. Do they have edu- academic education? Cause it's something else to lean on. I think that is really important. And then have you won? Have you built up an organization and won? Because I think that's valuable too, to go through that cycle, right. To win and then go back and rebuild again. So the four names that I came up with based on all the data I've collected is the Fort I'll just rattle them off and we can talk about each of them yeah, individually, it. but it's Martin Madden, the assistant general manager for Anaheim, uh, Ross Mahoney, the assistant general manager in Washington, uh, Mike Feuda, who used to be the assistant GM in LA, uh, and they won a couple cups, and then Mark Unetti, who's the director of scouting in Los Angeles. Those four guys are four names that I bring up because they, if you look at all the the attributes and the skill sets that I talked about, they check almost all those boxes off. Like every one of them almost checks off every box. So even if you look at Martin Madden, the Anaheim Ducks from 06 to 15 were the second most efficient team at drafting and developing in the entire league. They got the most players to play 200 games, second most behind Pittsburgh. We could that might surprise you. Right. The other, the advantage with Martin as well is that, you know, he has experience on the business side outside of hockey and he's highly educated. So he has a civil engineering degree and an MBA and a finance MBA as well. Really highly intelligent person and the industry, everybody respects him um, from that standpoint. So he's been in the position in Anaheim a long time and he is a really strong leader. And then you look to Ross Mahoney in Washington, they've won a cup and they, they've have, so if you look at the top five teams that drafted and developing in the salary cap era, 06 to 15, Washington is right below Ottawa, right? Uh, right below Ottawa and right below, um, you know, Anaheim in that respect. So they're excellent at drafting and developing. Ross Mahoney is well-respected. He's educated as well. He was a teacher, University of Saskatchewan, has, has experience in business outside of hockey. Like he checks the box. They've won, checks the box. And then you look at the duo in – you know, out of LA with Mike Feud and Mark Inetti. They came in and LA wasn't a good franchise and they built it up from the ground up, won two Stanley Cups, tore it down, and then rebuilt it again. And think about that time frame of where like the time that LA won last won their Stanley Cup and then they started to rebuild, they're right back up into playoff contention. Why isn't the Ottawa Senators? It's been the same timeline. Oh, yeah. For but if sure. you look at the LA Kings, they're in the top five best drafting development teams in the salary cap era as well. And you look at the drafting record and development of the LA Kings, and you look at, we'll use Mar- um, you know, Mark Unetti as an example. So he's run the amateur and pro of scouting in LA. He's run the American Hockey League team, team there. He's been involved in player development, and he 
is directly involved with all the analytics department and help builds out all their models as well. And he has a university from like, and he has Ivy league university degree, like Brown university, Williams college. So obviously extremely highly intelligent. So like there's, he checks all the boxes from that standpoint. And then you look at Mike Fuda and in very similar respects, he did a lot of the same roles, obviously with LA before he left as well. So I think those four names are, would be prime candidates. And then, you know, I think you want to throw Matthew Darshan into that because, you know, obviously he interviewed very well with Montreal. Um, you know, does the GM need to speak French in this market, in that marketplace? I think it's a bonus. I don't think it's necessary, but I think it's a bonus. Like, you know, you look at previous GMs, not all of them, you know, spoke French, but I think you can get away with it if you don't. So Martin Madden, obviously, you know, he he's francophone. He lives in Quebec City. You know, his dad was a for, was a former scout. So, you know, he checks that box, but I don't think it's really, it's not mandatory. I'd rather have highly competent general manager that doesn't speak French over somebody who maybe is not as qualified and does speak French. I mean, it's yeah. nice to have, but I think you can, you can live without it. Because I, I think, think the fans, at the end of the day, they want to win. Yeah, it, it's not quite the same dynamic as in Montreal, where they're all about the language. But, like, I guess, Louis, you are a Francophone. Um, does it matter yeah. to you if the GM speaks French? I, I do think it serves as more of a tiebreaker, personally. I mm-hmm. mean, like, obviously it helps that, like, you know, most of the communication that I do is in English and all that, so it's easy to track everything, right? But, um, like, it, exactly, if... at, at the bottom line is the fans do want to win first and foremost, right? What we want to see is see the team win the Stanley cup at the end of the day. Um, so if you have two like completely similar GMs, then sure. Take the one that is able to speak bilingually like on his part during media and for the team. Um, but yes, I do think competency is absolutely and should be the number one priority in the search. You know, particularly yeah. for like organizations that have won. Like and that's, that's to what me, I was what, gonna say. Yeah. What what's important to me is like, and if you've been there from the beginning and helped build that team into a winner. So yeah. if you look at Martin Madden, you know, they didn't win in Anaheim, but they had like his record of drafting developing is ridiculous. You know the Anaheim Ducks currently have eleven defensemen in the NHL that the Anaheim Ducks have drafted and developed. Eleven. I remember all those guys on their uh, 2017 or 2017 team that was in the conference finals. They had like a stacked defense back then. And then now they're all like spread out throughout the, throughout the league at this point, And they still have yeah, more. They're all gone, but they're all, but they, yeah, they have 11 defensemen. They've drafted mm. and developed in the NHL. Like that's insane. That number is ridiculous. Yeah. And you it's going to grow everywhere. Like and, yeah. their, their pool is crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, I give Martin a lot of credit for that. He has an excellent scouting staff and you know, he, that makes a difference as an assistant general manager. But then you look at, you know, like the Washington Capitals don't get as much enough credit for their drafting developing. Like they don't win the Stanley Cup with what without drafting. And then there's a there's another organization that doesn't get any credit for the goaltenders they draft. Like three, I think it was three years ago, I had tracked that six of the goaltenders in the NHL were drafted and developed by the Washington Capitals. Six, either wow. starters or backups. Like that's crazy, mm-hmm. right? Like so, there's, there's only that, so many goalies uh, that you can have in your organization and six at them, once. And yeah. six of them came out or were Washington Capitals. So like, there's there's all these little themes that develop in pockets of like how exceptional some of these teams are. If you look at the LA Kings under Mike Fuda and, and Mark Yannetti, 
the number of players that just keep get churned out of that organization and they they move them. So if you look at the LA Kings now as an example, one of the interesting things is somebody I, I heard it was brought up like, oh, maybe their scouting's not as good. I'm like, well, how many of those prospects or those young players got traded away? Look what happened in the Dubois trade. Those were all drafted players that have turned yeah. into NHL players that they traded away. What about Fiala? I you trust me, the LA Kings did not want to trade away Brock Faber, but they had to give something. And you know the Minnesota Wild are super excited to get Brock Faber. That's what the Sens don't have right now is those types of prospects to trade away to improve the team. Because like you were saying earlier about the recent first-round draft record, we we don't have those guys. No, there's no Logan Brown. There's no Shane Bowers. There's no, like, Bernard Docker has not made it turned out yet. Lassie Thompson has not turned out yet. Like, that's two defensemen and two forwards. Like, even if Brown and Bowers were third-line players, but good, Mm -hmm. really good third-round players. That would players. be great right now. That changes everything. What if, like, yeah. Docker and Thompson are four or five defensemen? One's a four, one's a five, right? It changes the dynamic of what your organization it is because you don't have to go out and spend assets, like whether it's whether it's cap or whether it's assets to acquire to get other players. and that, Or you can package an upgrade, right? It gives you that mm-hmm. organizational asset flexibility to make those – trades without having rob without robbing peter to pay paul and that's what happens is you're trading off assets for the future and sooner or later the check comes due and the bottom falls out this i use the example of the vancouver canucks when they made their run to the stanley cup final they were the best team in the league but if you looked at their draft and development record they were in the bottom five of the league so you knew once those guys started getting a little bit older the bottom was going to follow that team and they were going to be terrible because there was no push from below. And that's what you have. And that's where the Sens are right now. They're not like maybe, you know, Buffalo or New Jersey because they're missing that grouping between 23 to 25. And that was that 2016 to 19 group, that four years. They're missing those four players, not including the second round picks that, you know, some of them didn't pan out. Now, there were obviously there's some draft picks that have made it and it make it's making the situation look better than it actually is. But I think that's where that's the issue for this organization is you got to make up for those assets of those four draft years. And that's hard to do. And that's going to come through development. You're going to put more assets and more budget into player development and more assets into your middle management. And then because when you hire a GM, no GM's going to come in and wave their magic wand and everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. What I'm interested in is who they're going to hire as a GM and then who are they going to hire as their AGMs? Because they need two AGMs. Like somebody has to come in and be the AGM to run both the pro and amateur staff. And then you're going to need another AGM to run your cap and do all your contracts and and ideally manage a research and development department, not an analytics department, because I think that's become antiquated. I think you need to have a more robust R&D department like a Fortune 500 company. So you're going to have to hire that player, that person too. So you got two AGMs and a GM to be higher. And you need to add at least one more body, if not two in player development. And then you have to consider even expanding your other departments underneath that in your analytics department. And so it's not just GM. And I know the focus is on GM, but it's really, it's the lieutenants and colonels underneath that general 
that is going to make the difference whether this organization really flourishes in the future because you're going to have to make up for the asset loss from 2016 to 19 and which is why i suggested these four gentlemen as potential gm candidates because what is their bread and butter it's acquiring, drafting, finding assets from uh, not only other organizations, but drafting, developing players and finding players that can play in the NHL more than 200 games because that you have to get to that point. So why not hire people who have that track record? You can look for the really bright young executive coming up, but I'm looking for somebody who's in, you know, still young relatively 40 50 is still young as an executive but somebody who has a track record and doing that because i don't think they can afford to hire somebody who doesn't have that track record i just think it's too much of a risk from from an organizational standpoint that's why i like the names that you've brought up because it's a bunch of guys who have longevity with either going between different teams or even within one team and kind of going through the long grind of eventually winning like those the guys uh on the kings they were there way before they won right yeah uh, same with washington yep same thing right and the same crew and understanding how to build and build scouting departments from the pro side amateur side player development how they all these departments work in synchronicity because they can't work in silos where and the american league has to be tied directly to all the departments and then your r&d department hopefully if you build one of those with a human performance department inside of that like that all has to work in conjunction with with each other and that's going to cost budget but if you don't have those people in place you're just spreading your you're spreading your personnel too thin, and that's mm-hmm. where mistakes are made because they're good people, but you can only you only have so much cognitive capacity as a human being. All of us are like we're limited by that, so you need you know people around you to do you know as good a job as they possibly can and have as many of those people as you can, and they're in a great position because now the the slate's clean. Like when when do you ever get a sl- a clean slate? And your team isn't god awful, right? They're in the middle of the pack, kind of you know around a 500 team. When does that ever happen? Where you can go out and hunt for a new GM and a couple of assistant GMs and like go cherry pick off the teams that have been won Stanley Cups consistently and have built up Stanley Cup contenders over a decade? Go hunt for those guys and go get them, right? Find who's available that. You can because no one likes sideways moves, so you're not going to get those sideways moves. Like you have to like if you're going to bump somebody up from an AGM to GM, you can do that. And if you're going to go get an AGM, he can't be an AGM because almost sideways moves almost never happen. So you have to be really strategic. That's why I also sort of brought up these names is where you know some of these guys can jump into AGM roles. You could take like two of these guys out of this roster of the four oh, guys. Yeah. Right. And like one of them could be a GM, one could be an assistant GM. And all of a sudden you just cherry picked two top end executives Mm -hmm. and then they help build out the rest of the roster. And then you're going to have to find an AGM who can, you know, has an economics background, a finance background and negotiate contracts and understands the cap and can manage an R&D department to be your other AGM because, you know, Peter McTavish isn't there anymore. Right. And they've just had a gaping hole ever since he left. So that hasn't helped either. Mm-hmm. 
I think to sort of wrap up this conversation, I'm going to go between the three of us and ask you guys to pick one of these names. If you had to pick one of the names we've discussed here today, who would you be most comfortable moving forward with as the GM of the Sens? I think uh, Shane has kind of convinced me that Mike Fuda would be an awesome choice. Uh, I like that he has had such a long uh, tenure in the NHL already and he was with the Kings before they were good got the two cups and like Shane pointed out earlier they were able to rebound very quickly after they started falling off and missing the playoffs a little bit and they look like they're going to be one of the best few teams in the next few years here so I really like that he's been involved with that like for a long time uh, who would you pick Louie? Mara, I mean, you just stop picking my answers right yeah. before oh I, I saw the look on your face <laughs> But now, like, both those options, like, both Fuda and Yanetti are excellent. Like, as Shane said, like, they've had a big role in terms of uh, in running some of the analytics and the and the R&D side of things, and that's super promising. And again, being able to bring in someone that has seen the entire cycle from, like, rebuilt to contender and being able to come in, situate themselves and say, okay, this is where we're at. I know what we need to really promote and develop right away and what we can kind of, what we can kind of focus on later and exactly know what priorities need to be in place to really maximize the value of this franchise both now and moving on to the future for the for the on-ice product and all. So I'd really be interested to see one of those two uh, coming in because that that would be just excellent and I couldn't wait. And with with the new ownership and all that, I I really am pretty confident that we can bring in someone of that stature and that just as sense fans like i i am getting so tired of talking about off his stuff and okay. injuries and i just i yearn for these for other franchises that can just talk about just on ice performance of players and i cannot wait for us to get to that kind of point and just rejoice with stuff like that mm-hmm. we it's- need all that drama out of the way it's interesting. You have a couple, there's a couple st- strategic, you know, directions they could go in. So say hypothetically, say you brought in a Peter Shirelli, but then he could turn around as a GM, could turn around and hire Mike Food as an AGM who's done it before, but right. then also could turn around and hire, could ask the LA Kings for permission to hire Yanetti as also another AGM. So you could all of a sudden have, you could bring in three hires from Three yeah. people who have been executives who have won Stanley Cup. So obviously Peter Shirelli won in Boston. So, or it could be a situation where, like as you guys alluded to, you could bring in Mike Foot as a GM, but then you know potentially Mike could ask LA for permission to hire Mark Unity as his right hand man as AGM in in Ottawa. So then you're getting two for one in a bunch of different situations, or even three, right? In that respect. You know, if or if like Mark, Ross Mahoney comes in, maybe he could bring in, you know, one of these guys as an AGM, right? Maybe he like it's Fuda and Mahoney or it's Fuda, Mahoney and Yanetti. Like those things could happen because Fuda doesn't work for an NHL team. Mark Yanetti's not an AGM and Ross Mahoney is an AGM or it could be with Martin Madden, right? Because this is like the advantage is, is that you got a couple people in there that are not at AGM level, so it doesn't have to be this, you know, sideways move, which teams don't like to do. Um, you know, and Peter Shirelli obviously isn't as a GM right now. He's a senior advisor with St. Louis. So I think Ottawa is in a really interesting situation where instead of just looking at it from one individual as an AG, as a GM, look at it from strategically, okay, 
who is that AGM, who's that GM going to bring with him and who's available? Like what talent's available instead of like doing the one hire and then the one hire and then the one hire, you know, and things sort of get spread out. Just look at it from, okay, we're building this organization. Who's available? Who are the best people available? How many of them can we get? Like, because A-level players or A-level people love working with other A-level people and they don't get to do it very often. So if you can go and cherry pick and pull guys out of organizations who have done what obviously, you know, both of you had talked about of building it up to a Stanley Cup contender and then it coming apart um, and then rebuilding it again, like those are the people that if I was in an ownership position, I'm like, I would be looking at how many of these guys can we get? How many can we get? Can we get three of them? Because is there a way for us to, to navigate this where we can get three of them? Right? Can we get one of them as a GM and two as an two as assistant GMs? Can we do that? Is that possible? Because that's what I would be looking at and not looking at it just the one GM comes in with his magic wand and fixes everything because that just never happens. It just doesn't exist in the real world. That makes yeah, we're in sense. such like a unique spot where we have so many spots open to bring in so many top level guys. Yeah, you, it, have, it, it you was, essentially have three yeah. spots potentially mm-hmm, yeah. right now. You don't see that very who, often. No, it depends on how, how that works in terms of who can do what in that respect and how you fit that in. And so you could potentially have the, say the five names that we talked about, including Peter Shirelli, you might find a way to be able to get three guys out of that five. It's possible if you want to spend the money, but I think it's worth it. Absolutely. I think it'd be like, <laughs> absolutely. Like I have no problem as, you know, as a business person hiring a level talent, like you pay for that because the return on investment is far more than whatever you're going to yeah. pay in their salary. I think it's very likely too, that we go down that sort of a route because um, it, they were saying on TSN that it's, it's less likely that Steve Steos would just himself become the GM because uh, they were talking about how Ann Lauer is coming from the Canadians where they have uh Kent Hughes as the GM, wants, and then it's yeah. a, I can't remember the name, but it's Two-Headed Monster. Guy. Yeah, the Two-Headed Monster. Yes, so yeah. maybe we'll see our own Two-Headed Monster or even Three-Headed Monster because there's there's well, lots of space open in the front office. Well, that makes it dangerous because then you have, like, in terms of against the competitors, you have Steve Steos, then you have, like, a high-level GM, and potentially you're adding two more high-level assistant GMs. Like, you could pull three people in who have won Stanley Cups from different organizations. Mm-hmm. One is a GM, was and two is assistant GMs. Like, like you want to talk about the biggest power move in terms of pulling in like high level executives. This is this type of opportunity for an organization rarely happens. Yeah, it rarely happens. And if it does happen, it's when the team is absolute garbage and at the bottom of the league, and it's going to be a seven to ten year rebuilding. And Ottawa's not there. They're kind of in the middle there. They're like probably two or three years away from being a real dangerous team. If you can mitigate that asset loss from that, you know, 2016 to 2019 year. So I, I, for me, from an outsider, looking at it from a case study, a business case study standpoint, this is going to be interesting in terms of strategic leadership, because that's what position Michael Anlauer and Steve Steos are in. It's like, what do they do with this opportunity? Um, you know, and I wouldn't be worried about like relate past relationships you have. Let's let's go get the best people we possibly can, and then you build relationships moving forward. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's a huge opportunity to just bring in 
a ton of successful guys, you know, or guys with tons of success, regardless of how many people it ends up being added to to the front office. There's a lot of good options, a lot of opportunity to be had for these executives as well, joining the senators. Like you said, um, that they're not a complete bottom feeder right now. That's got to be enticing for people to want the job as well. Um, it's a Canadian market. Like, mm-hmm, yeah. it, like mm-hmm. people love to work in the Canadian market because it's the fans care. Like, you know, Sens fans are crazy. They care. And you want to you want to work in, in an organization where, you know, the fans, they, it matters. And there's going to be a new building soon. And it'll be downtown. And it'll be great. Like, it'll be great to have. Oh my yeah. God. And that's another opportunity. What do you do with, you know, the, the, the rank in Canada? Do you blow off like basically that top bowl and drop the roof down? And just that's where the American league team plays. So you have the, like you have hmm. the baby sends. I never in, thought about that. You have the baby sends cool. in Canada and then you have the sends in downtown Ottawa. And then in terms of player development, it changes the whole landscape. Talk to any NHL general managers or assistant gyms that have their farm team right next to their parent club. And they said it's, it changes everything in terms of player development. You look at Calgary, you look at Vancouver, you look I was at about to say Vancouver has had it rough with like Utica, right? right? Like, cause that right? is that so was, that, far. That was, that was a terrible situation. Now that's changed. Winnipeg, Toronto, um, the Kings, San Jose, all those California um, teams. Like, yeah, Anaheim is San Diego is just down the road. It's like an hour and a half drive. It's not far, uh, you know. And those type of situations are a huge advantage in terms of player development because all your got all your people are in the same area, right? Yeah, there's so, more exposure. Yeah. Well, you're, you have your NHL player development, you have your AHL player development, you have your prospect player development. Everybody is close by. Right, all your management is together. You can collectively get together. It's like I use the analogies when you throw a bunch of rocks into the rock tumbler, and they're all rough. But if you have a really bunch of a lot of smart people working together all the time, they like that. They like that being close together and having those conversations. And what ends up coming out is a bunch of polished gems. And that's why I think it's really necessary to have your group close together if you can, particularly your farm team. So. I would be an advocate of having the baby sends in, in Canada and having them close by and not having them far awesome. away. Yeah, that would make like four pro thought. teams or yeah. maybe not pro, but four top notch hockey teams that are with the 67s, the PWHL team, the Stens and the B sends all like mm-hmm. within 30 well, minutes. And then, then Gatno's just across, right? So yeah, the Gatineau's Q's there too. too. Yeah. Like honestly, the, Ottawa would be the best Canadian city to watch hockey. And then you have actually have college hockey, like an, not, like an, not even an hour away. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Just down the road. So, I mean, to me, they would be the best hockey city in the country from that standpoint, but it just, I look at it from like the business standpoint, it's going to save you so much time and money in player development. If you're right next door to each other, forget like, and then not only saves you money, it's just like the call-ups, right? What if there's bad weather? I love the paper transactions that teams do, yeah. right? When you have the, oh, my team is right there. We'll do it just a paper transaction. And then over time of a year, you might save yourself $500,000 by just mm-hmm. doing simple paper transaction. And then it comes to the deadline, that matters. It's all those kind of strategic things to think about. Oh, it's going to cost us money to be in Canada. Oh, but you know, you have a savvy AGM who could do paper transactions. You're going to skim cap off for sure and save it to what you can. I know you can 
towards the, towards the trade deadline. So there's a lot of different options for the Ottawa centers. I think they're most right now. I know there's a lot of chaos for the fans, but I think they're the most intriguing team in the NHL right now for its potential of what's coming next. They could really hit some home runs here in the yeah, next couple of years. You're new 100% building, correct. Yeah. New building downtown, move the baby sins into Canada, new exec, you know, new executives add to your hockey op staff. Um, I think it'd be a huge boost to the franchise. Mm -hmm. Even though there's been all this this drama and turmoil lately, you are right that uh, I think things will be looking up, especially once the team gets that new management group in place. I think it's going to be nothing but positivity moving forward, even though it's a little bit rocky on the ice right now. Hopefully the Sens will be able to turn things around against uh, Tampa on Saturday night. Uh, my co-host Charlie will have that stream uh, for all, all the watchers out there. Um, and we're going to... Skip on the chat segment tonight, not because it wasn't busy, shout out to everyone in the chat, but just because uh, my camera battery is about to die because we're going on so long here. I could talk to both of you all night. It's been an amazing discussion. Um, Louis, do you want to uh, plug your show and your social media? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter uh, and on Blue Sky. Uh, just Louis Boulay, my name, you'll find me there. And uh, the Zoopcast also, which is a podcast that me and two of my buddies have, along with some potential uh, hockey analytics and dashboards that I've been posting preliminarily there and maybe some more coming from that on a more set platform like a website or something soon so stay tuned for that and Maud thank you so much for having me on always a pleasure and Shane where can the people find you uh, we're uh, Hockey Prospect Radios on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio so we air on Saturdays and Sundays it's generally airs six or seven times but you can find it in the podcast format so it'll be on any of your podcast platforms like Spotify or Apple so if you miss it if you don't have SiriusXM you can listen to it there so I'm easily found on Twitter it's um, at HP Radio or at Shane Malloy and you can find out when uh, the next show is up actually this weekend we're on Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon and then Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon on SiriusXM but when in doubt you can always listen to the podcast appreciate it Awesome. So lots of content coming from Shane that you guys can check out too. Yeah, so that's going to do it for tonight. Thank you everyone so much for watching. Subscribe to STPN if you are not already subscribed. Leave a like on the video. And yeah, thank you for watching and listening. Have a good night, everyone.